Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. With me on the show today is Roxanne Brown and Ed Cook, co-founders of The Change Decision, a change and culture consultancy focused on growing joy at work. Today's interview is part of the Connex Executive Insights Series brought to you by Connex Partners. Connex Partners is the number one executive network for HR and healthcare professionals. Connex connects business leaders from across the U.S., helping them solve their greatest challenges together. So give us just a couple of minute intro of yourselves and your organization, and then we're going to jump into the questions our listeners are waiting to hear about. How do we do this well? Great. Roxanne Brown. So my background is in change management. I've always done this work professionally. I discovered it late in the 90s when my company that I would work for at the time was going through a terrible merger and happened to be going to school at the same time and took a change of leadership class and realized, oh, wait, there's a way to do this that's good for everyone. So that's been the focus of my career ever since. Ed and I started the change decision five years ago because we had an amazing joy at work experience 10 years ago that we thought, Hey, we need to keep doing this. We need to figure out how to help other people do this. So that's what led us to start the change decision. And I'm Ed Cook. My background has been mostly in leading organizations, although also with a strong piece of analytics. So I've been an analyst in multiple different organizations, and I'm now a professor as well at the University of Richmond. I teach analytics in both the MBA and the undergrad programs, and that's an important component for Roxanne and I and the work that we do. So Joy at Work definitely has a rainbows and fluffy bunnies kind of piece to it, uh, <laughs> but we also try and bring in an analytic piece to it. So how do you really know? that you are making a cultural improvement. And so we thread that in to all of the work that we do so that we can essentially prove it, prove that you know that you are getting somewhere with the work that you're doing. Ed, I want to say thank you for your service and also highlight that you spent time in Iraq. So I'm guessing you have a side of you that is not fluffy bunnies, that it's... That's right. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's one of the reasons why he can get away with that. Yeah, right. So when you say you're a Navy pilot and you've been to these different crazy places and then talk about joy at work, people react to you a little bit differently. Yeah. I did want to highlight that you've got large corporate, you've got university, you've got consulting, and you've got military and analytics all wrapped into the methodology. So it really is some kind of hardcore stuff. Yes, it is. Yeah. It's been fascinating to get to go do it now with all of these different organizations, both very large and very small and see pretty significant consistency in how this idea of joy at work shows up. It doesn't really matter how big you are. It matters more what your intention is as a leader, where you want your organization to go and how do you want your culture to be for your people. Yeah. And one of the great things that I experienced in the corporate world was I learned how to do change work in a highly skeptical, highly analytical environment, (laughs) which means being theoretical was not going to fly, right? You were going to need to start there just to know that just so people understood that you had a point of view, but you need to get practical immediately (laughs) and people needed to understand what you were talking about. So I feel that change is very mysterious to people naturally. And so we want to make it practical so that people can actually do something with it. And I'll throw in, I have had a number of years of experience at Accenture 
in the change practice when it was a new thing. Yeah. I worked in paper manufacturing plants and utilities and people who didn't really not want a bunch of fluffy theoretical stuff. Tell me how to get it done. I worked in a steel plant environment. We hired you consultants. You're here to get stuff done. You've been here three days. What have you produced? You're expensive and you're supposed to make stuff change. I think we share that value in being theoretically grounded because just making stuff up has a negative outcome in the long term. Right. And delivering results that are very tangible quickly and consistently. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And most leaders, they understand that they need to lead change but they understand it kind of theoretically, conceptually, but then, okay, what exactly do you want me to do? <laughs> right? This whole idea of being empathetic. Okay, well, what, what does that mean? And how does that help me get the job done? Right? There's a lot of conceptual things out there in the leadership world, which are great, but the how do I do it remains mysterious for most leaders. Let's start the conversation then with this VUCA environment. And the reason this is so interesting to me COVID highlighted, there's a way to lead change for something I've planned. I'm implementing a large computer system. And lots of people do that really well. And then there's the change, and you mentioned this even in the intro, change that's happening to me. I don't get the choice to plan as deliberately COVID as I do implementing a computer system. So we're talking about changes constant. We're in a VUCA environment that's here to stay. One, let's unpack just for a second, what is VUCA? And then with that in mind, how can leaders thrive and prepare to lead change and prepare for the unplanned? So do you want to take what is VUCA or do you want me to? If you want to talk about what the four are, that'd be great. I have to look it up to actually remember what the four things are. (laughs) (laughs) Volatility, increased volatility. And if we look at weather, we're seeing that. If we look at the stock market, we see this uncertainty that goes with that. Increased complexity that we may not have seen it while it's been happening for a while. That communication around the world, stock trades, currency values can change literally in a fraction of a second. Something that a trader does on one side of the world ripples through the global economy. The final is things are ambiguous. In the past, there was a sense of right and wrong and what does success look like. And as you're implementing analytics, the data gives us so much more information. And back to the complexity, the decisions aren't as clear anymore. I know more and in some ways, I know less. There was a time when good and bad was a clear decision and people who have recently met could say this is good and that's bad. We now live in a world where I'm not going to ask you on air a bunch of questions because we could have an entirely different view, even when we're close friends, about what's good or bad or right or wrong. Mm -hmm. It's just the world of gray is much bigger for many of us, and specifically people in leadership spaces. We're just grappling is a word I really like because I think really good leaders grapple with difficult situations. They recognize they're difficult and they spend the energy collectively and personally navigating the questions that we didn't have to face in prior years. So that's my summary of what is VUCA. So with that in mind, how can leaders thrive in the reality and prepare themselves for change? 
I find the, the VUCA thing interesting because um, you mentioned my military service, Maureen. The VUCA came out of the Army War College in the late 80s. That's when they started writing about it and started to permeate throughout the military from there. Just to get this idea across of these four different factors and how they're impacting military leaders as they start to think about what they need to do. And the focus then hits into this area that Roxanne and I talk a lot about, which is the notion of fear versus attraction. And I think a lot of people have a misconception that military leaders lead through fear, right? You give orders, you make demands, you shove the troops forward. And that's not true. The military leaders that are great lead by attraction. So where are we going? What are we trying to do? And if ever there is a place where you're taking on change that you don't like. That's certainly happening in the military. You know, nobody wants to go into a combat zone or deal with all the things that you have to deal with. That's a constant set of changes that are often life-threatening. And having a leader that you are driving with and towards a place is far more powerful than a leader you're afraid of, or the leader is highlighting the thing to be afraid of. And so I think at, at the very beginning, it's thinking as any leader now, so this is irrespective of the military, it's any leader in any organization. If you're leading towards attraction, where are we going? What's going to be better? The entire mindset, both the leader and everyone that's engaged is very different. So if I focus in on what's the bad part of change, then the bad part of change is probably going to show up. Mm -hmm. uh, but if I focus in as a leader on the good part of change and talk about that to begin with, not to get rid of what's going on or to sweep under the rug what's bad, because you want to be clear and honest about that, but to start with what's going to be good and drive off of that and create a place for people to go and get excited about going. Then, especially the uncertainty and the ambiguity part that's in VUCA becomes easier to take on. Like, yeah, it's uncertain, but I know where my leader wants to take me. I can't be certain about that. Maybe I am uncertain about the world. I don't know what's going to happen with COVID. I'm not sure what the economic impact is going to be, or even things that are more local. I may not know any of those. I may not be clear about which of the possibilities could happen. It's ambiguous, but that's okay because my leader has given me a place to go. And so I can wrap my brain around that and get excited about that. It's far more powerful than a fearful approach, which says, put your head down and try harder. It was difficult for me. It's going to be difficult for you. Any other terrible things that you may have heard in an organizational setting, all of those are paths to failure. I think the path to success is going to be, all right, team, we're going to go here and here's why and what we're going to be able to do with it. Yeah. And I learned that firsthand when I was in the corporate world and just saw it in action. When fear was the driver of change, which is Fear is a legitimate strategy for making change happen, right? We know that. But what I saw was that people would, to your point, put their heads down and do what they were told and really nothing more because otherwise they would likely get into trouble. And from time to time, they'd pick up their head and look around to see if anything's changed and they would go right back down. They'd basically freeze. But if you have an attraction strategy, then what you're doing is saying, this is the way we're going. And it helps people see if you communicate it in a way that they understand, oh, this is how I can uniquely contribute to making that thing happen. And that's when they put in their creativity 
and their discretionary brain power into making the vision happen. So I saw that over and over again in the corporate worlds I was working in. The VUCA antidote is vision, understanding, clarity, and adaptability. So you hit it head on that if, you know, the old change adage, burning platform, if you're not on the train, you know, I had this view of Mad Max where the big truck's going to run you over, back up and run you over again. And to your point, I'm afraid of doing that or I'm afraid of doing that. I'm choosing which thing I'm afraid of. Yeah. My boss running me over on a train platform or a burning platform that I'm going to jump off, you know, into some abyss or trying something new rather than we're in this together. We're either military, we're engaging in a firefight. Firefight. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) We're engaging in a firefight. I assume everyone lines up and they're together when they do that, not straggling along all over the place or the consequence is bad. It's easy to see in the military when it's life and death. In a corporate setting, though, similarly, if we're accomplishing something difficult together, then we're inclined to, I've got your back when you're afraid. I've got your back when you make a mistake. We're all going to make mistakes. So the combination of vision and cohesion really pulls us through the difficulty where threats and fear less effective. Yeah, we have gone to this place where we're helping leaders set an intention and we call it a joy intention. What that means is we ask people to describe what would they like it to be like on the team in general, but also how would you like them to experience the change process? Not the change in the end, but the process of going through it. And it can be things like, it's okay for us to have direct conversations I want everyone to feel respected. I want everyone to feel like debate is enjoyable and something that is part of our strategy for innovation, right? Some very basic things that are important to you as a leader, because if you have that intention written down, you can keep that front and center and that can direct your words and actions. Eventually, people will get it. People will eventually see, oh, this is the culture that my leader is cultivating. It's going to take a while, right? It doesn't happen overnight, but they do pay attention to leaders' words and actions as a cue for them to decide how they should respond because they're trying to figure out what's happening. They're trying to understand how to be successful in this world you describe. So the intention turns out to be one of the big things that is emerging as more important than ever. You talked about antidote, Maureen. One of the, the I think the, an antidote to this idea of change fatigue, which we hear a bunch of, is this movement towards attraction. Why are people fatigued? Well, being fearful is tiring. And so if you're fearful <laughs> all the time and the next change and the next change is about fear, well, yeah, of course you're going to be tired. But if you're in a dynamic environment that you see things changing and you see that you're going somewhere, something that you can be interested in and excited about, well, that's way less tiring. It may actually be energizing. Lots of people want to be part of organizations that are dynamic and evolving and doing interesting things. They want to be part of that. They don't want it to be completely stopped and stayed, but it's how that gets done. And it's the how, I think, that drives 
that change fatigue. And so if you do it well, what Roxanne and I talk about is moving towards joy at work and setting an intention as a leader to get there, then that change fatigue thing is going to be way less of a problem. You are going to have a bunch of people that are excited about where you're going as an organization. The thing that we now say all the time is that we've learned through experience that it's not so much what is changing that people get upset by, because people understand companies need to change. It's how change is done. That's when you lose them. Because even change you like, I mean, I'm sure you've had the experience where a change that was supposed to be really great, but because it was done so poorly, people resent it. <laughs> right? So it's so much about the how. I love the focus on the how, because to your point, we talk about the vision. Life is going to be rainbows and unicorns when we do this thing three years from now. And and you're going to work crazy hours and miss your kids' first steps and all these things. But won't it be nice when we have this computer system working? Right. Tough sell. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The cohesion bit for me is really important, Mm -hmm. that how we function together, I love calling it an intention for the journey, that we're going to build a more cohesive team. We're going to enjoy the process rather than you're going to just muscle through for the next three years and then life is going to be good. Well, by then six more things have changed. And back to your change fatigue, it never gets better. Yeah. and, And there's no point in trying to fight against it. It is reality. And so the idea is to solve for reality. And what if it could be a joyful experience? The thing that we are usually able to connect with, with people, is this idea of some experience they've had in the past, where it was the best team they ever worked on or they ever led. Usually people have an experience like that. And we ask them the questions like, what was happening? What made it so great? What were you able to accomplish because of all the ways that you were behaving as a team? It's almost like you go into this romanticized memory of this thing that was so great. And then you can ask yourself, okay, well, what two or three things would you love to see happen on this current team? And what difference would that make? And what might you be able to accomplish because those two or three things were part of the change? And the questions that we're asking are about attraction. They're not about analyzing. They're not about fear. We never go into that fear place. We're always in fear. And that's partially because that's our training. Our training is to look at a problem and judge it and try and get rid of it, right? It's almost very fearful in in its very basic way. But when you focus there, when it comes to people and change, people shut down as opposed to lift up. We're looking for that upward spiral in how people behave with each other. So starting with this, remember that great thing that happened a long time ago? Well, tell me about it. Because it was probably one of those situations where it seemed impossible on the surface, yet look, you accomplished it. My guess is everyone around your table has a story just like that. So there's all this potential right there that you could tap into and see what happens. That for us is joy at work. I love that you're explaining it and and it really taps into the neuroscience by inviting in the positive memories. It's also activating a different part of the brain and engaging people, actually changing the neural pathways Mm -hmm. so that I am more connected to that and concurrently less connected to that fearful outcome. Yeah. If we do it often enough, it's not a one-time 
(laughs) Right. That is why we say, okay, now you need to ask yourself, am I about to lead in line with my attention or squash it? (laughs) You know, and it's difficult, right? Ed talks about how he's been in the moment leading and just having a reaction. And then he realizes, oh, well, that's not helping. Right. I mean, the best <laughs> best thing to get is someone to kind of guide you through it, to provide some input to you that you can't see maybe. I mean, you're like physically, biologically can't take it in. There's just too much going on and you can't appreciate what's happening or you just need a very different perspective. This kind of goes back to what Roxanne mentioned about the origin that we had or origin sort of working together as well as the origin of what became the change decision. So this is in the Wayback Machine over 10 years ago, and we were working on one of those very large IT projects that people always talk about. It was millions of dollars. We had an enormous team, 250 people. We were impacting 10,000 employees in the company with the process change and the technology change that goes with it. 18 months into the project, and it is not going well. And I mean, really, really not going well. I'm leading and Roxanne is driving the change management part of the work, and we're just struggling all the way through it. It turned out that the project had been significantly underscoped. So I had the pleasure of talking to the CIO and telling him that this $30 million project was now going to cost $70 million. And that was a very difficult conversation to have. And I'm sure the only reason I didn't get fired and blown out of his office was I was not the person that actually came up with the estimate, but I was the one delivering the very bad news that it was more than double in order to complete the thing. But that wasn't the lowest point. The lowest point came just a few weeks later. At this company, the CEO would do an annual strategy review and bring all the managers in an all day event. And at one point, a slide comes up and it has four boxes on the slide and they represent the four largest projects that are going on in the company at the time. And he goes through the first three and talks about how wonderful they are and how successful and look how great we are and our ability to get things done. And then comes to the fourth one, which is our project and says, but there's just one project that we're disappointed in. And it felt like every head in the auditorium had snapped around to look at my reaction. And it's thousands of people in this room. It's not a small room. And and it is difficult, very difficult. And I would really love to be able to now say I started on this hero's journey where I dug deep and was able to pull forward with the fortitude to drive the entire project forward to success. But instead, I literally started working on my resume because I thought for sure that if the CEO is going to call out the thing that I'm spending all of my time on is essentially a failure, there's no way I'm staying at this company for any length of time. But Roxanne convinced me to try something different. And what she did was uh, she asked me some of these questions that we've been talking about to think about a time when I was part of a team that I really enjoyed and was very successful. And what was that like? And then questions about what my intention, what would I want this team to be like? And then she took that to my leadership team and talked to all of them. And part of that was to show them what I had said. And it was striking for them to see that because that's what they wanted. That's not what we were doing at all. We weren't acting like that at all in any of the meetings we were doing. It very quickly could see it turn around. And it happened almost the next week, every Friday. I would have a leadership team meeting 
in this company at the time, this is of course before all this video stuff that we do now, people would literally phone into the meeting. Like they would be at home in their living room, in their jammies for all I know, phoned into the meeting. I would be there and Roxanne would be there and maybe a couple other folks. There's 10 or 12 of us there. But on this day, I'm running into the room late, which was typical because some executive would have grabbed me somewhere in the hallway to say, I need an update on this. And so I was perpetually, continually late for meeting. So I'm running into the room because in my head, I'm thinking, I got to get in, got to get to the phone, got to get dialed into the phone number, get everyone connected. They're all waiting for me. That's what's in my head. And I blow through the door and everyone is in the room and all of their laptops are closed, which is very countercultural. In this company, everyone would have their laptops up and they'd all be mashing on the keys all throughout (laughs) the meeting. Laptops are closed. Everyone's looking at me as we come in. This enormous change has happened because of what? Roxanne is done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was fascinating to see everyone show up. They were wanting to see what would happen next. They had hope. <laughs> and they were demonstrating that they had hope by just showing up and asking questions and getting into the, the work in a deeper way. In other words, their commitment had increased because of this hope. And it happened, as Ed said, almost immediately. It's one of those things that I kept saying You cannot script. This goes back to what you talked about earlier, Maureen, which is emergent change. Instead of event change, it's emergent change, right? And so what you're doing is you're setting this intention, seeing what happens, and then responding to it. And so things like this would happen all the time. And my job really was mostly to point it out. Hey, this happened. This is a good thing. (laughs) Reinforce that. Or hey, this is not so good. You might want to address that in some way so people really understand your intention here. And that's what happened over and over again. One of the things that Ed talks about sometimes is um, how in one of those Friday meetings, people were really engaged in the conversation and asking him a lot of questions. And, you know, you were thinking it was... I was getting angry. (laughs) I was getting really angry. Really, really angry because we were laying out this whole new program. I spent all kinds of time on the timeline for it. And people are peppering me with questions about it. And I can just feel the emotion rising up inside. And then all of a sudden I get a little pop-up instant message on my screen from Roxanne going, this is great. This is exactly what you wanted. <laughs> and in my head, I'm thinking, you're crazy. This is not what I wanted at all. But what she pointed out to me that I was completely unable to see in the moment was they were doing what I had hoped they would do, ask questions. We would engage in debate. We would try and take care of problems. We would get it solved. And they felt comfortable now to jump in and do that where Mm -hmm. they didn't before. And so we weren't getting to a place where we were solving problems. And so now instead, they were engaged in that effort. But I needed somebody else to help me see that because I just could not see it. And that unfortunately happened often. So it's definitely uh, (laughs) useful to have somebody there to point things out to you because I just couldn't take it in. It's just too much to take in. And so having a party that can just sit back and wrap all that up and go, nope, nope, you're okay, do it this way, or maybe take action over here was immensely valuable. Sometimes a, a little thing would just kick off something totally different. Like many organizations, we would do these all hands meetings once a quarter or so. And they were painful and PowerPoint driven. <laughs> and uh, we're prepping for one of these. And Roxanne says, why would you have all these people fly in from all over the country 
put them into a big giant room and subject them to PowerPoint for the entire day. <laughs> I don't know why that at that moment was this big, it was an enormous click. And I'm like, okay, that's it. No PowerPoint. All these different ideas started coming. So we did all kinds of crazy things that kind of rolled out from that. Uh, we did a two act play. The first act was what is it like when the system is put in place the way it is today? What's it going to be like in the future? We turned one of those all hands meetings into a late night talk show. I wore a suit. We set up chairs. We had a band. Roxanne and I sang with the band. Instead of the executives coming in to give their little speechy speeches, we made them sit down and I interviewed them. And so put them into a different mode and position. I mean, people loved it. When we would ask for feedback, the very first question we ask and the scale we would put it at is, this is the best all hands that I have ever underlined attended. And we would get 40 to 60% of the people saying yes to that, but repeatedly. It's like, okay, what are we going to do next? What's the next cool thing we're going to do? So we've been trying to beat out our own stuff to yeah. try and make it happen. Yeah. And that's all because by setting this different intention, I was excited to go do those things. But what I think is maybe even more important is the project itself never got easier. Right. It was miserable the entire time. I was on the phone every single evening at 5 p.m. talking to the software vendor about all their terrible software defects and what were they going to do to fix them. And we wrestled this thing into position and it took another 18 months to get there. But the morale on the team yeah. rocketed to the it top. So we were well into the 90%. The company at the time was on average in the low 70%. I mean, we were a significant outlier in the company in terms of the morale of the team. It certainly was not because the work got easier. The work was difficult all the way through. So I want to specifically make the point that this is repeatable, not just that you did it once and it worked and isn't that great, but my thing sucks and I'll never get out of it. <laughs> Right. What you did, you have done then consistently with other organizations, other projects over a decade almost. That's exactly right. It became our expectation, right? It became expectations of ourselves. We actually devote an entire web page on it as a case study so that people can see what happened. There, I actually have photographs of the intention that Ed wrote. And then I put the questions down there so people can do it themselves, right? We want people to know that this is possible for themselves and to try it out, even in small teams. It doesn't have to be, you know, such big stakes that we're talking about. You can do it with your small team if you have one. You could do it with a small project if you want to try it out. It made such a huge difference. When I think back now to the question I asked you about the best team, now this experience we had 10 years ago replaces the one that you talked right. about originally. So, and we were hoping and we believe it to be true that most people that were on that project would now point to this project we just discussed as the best experience they've ever had, right? That's now their best story. Again, we're hoping that that can keep playing forward. The other thing I heard, Ed, is you saying, as I was in the meeting, I was getting angry. People were talking back, asking questions after I've already told them what to do. And that idea that for leaders, there's no light switch that changes. We have been raised, ingrained, rewarded, punished, and our brains are now wired to behave in a certain way. And when things change, our brain senses danger. We fill with adrenaline. We're scanning for a way to come back to what is safe. 
my brain is trying to keep me alive and keep all these people in the room alive and they're doing something different. So my entire physiology now reacts with anger and probably a bunch of other soup of chemicals in your body. And fortunately, Roxanne was there to give you a different cue. But that reprogramming is literally the rewiring again of our brains and of our behaviors. It's not an instant shift. So having a facilitator or a partner or a coach or whatever person you put into that role who is present in the meetings and can give in the moment feedback and help you recalibrate. So it has to be someone you fundamentally trust, not just we rotate the assignment and this time it's your job. It is a colleague partner to help deal with um, thoughts and emotions that leaders have. And often we don't acknowledge that we have emotions at all, nor deal with them. And the only thoughts I'm supposed to have are, you know, what's next on the milestone list, not the, this bunch of idiots is doing something I don't like. How do we manage that kind of from a mindfulness perspective? And uh, I need to shift my thinking because these people aren't idiots. They're actually the precious souls we've invited in to do this project. And they're doing exactly what we asked them to do. But the dissonance can be in me as the leader, not in the group. And how do I even know if what needs to be fixed is me or them? Again, we're taught I'm the leader. Of course, it's them. Is what I'm feeling aligned with what I say I'm asking for? So this big question of, leadership alignment inside myself and then inside the organization. And as leaders, no one that I know growing up in my age group, that was never a thing that you'd think about. If it was wrong, it was those people. I am somehow divinely inspired with all answers. And giving that fantasy up has taken some time. And even for leaders who I would consider more enlightened, that stuff is still in there. And we still have the reaction. We just now have the process to say, is it me or them? Before I say something that I really can't take back. What I heard were several layers of senior leaders aren't always aligned. We don't always have their support. There's a way to get it. Middle managers, how do we help prepare them to navigate this as well? The lesson I think that we got out of our experience was in order for things to change, the leader has to change first. That's great to say. All right, (laughs) leaders, you have to go change first. Lovely. Maybe that's okay. (laughs) Now let's go have lunch. Right. (laughs) It's a chapter title, maybe, but that's, you know, it's not how to do it. You talk about middle managers. I was one of those, right? I'm, I did have this enormous team, but there's a whole bunch of people, seniors sitting on my head for this whole thing as well, right? I'm right in the middle of the organization, even though I've got this multi-million dollar thing that I'm trying to drive forward. One of the things that I said, and again, this is where Roxanne helped redirect me. When we were talking about doing this, I said, well, why are we focusing on the team? Shouldn't I be focusing on the executives? I mean, they're the ones that are giving us all this wacky direction that's making it difficult for us. And she said, They're a mess. No. <laughs> Let's not focus there. Let them be whatever they're going to be. We need to focus on your sphere of influence. So that's why we focus there. And getting back to what I said about things that you couldn't script. When the leadership team saw this shift in this team, they noticed, they shifted. 
it was like the team shifted the leadership team. It was so interesting how that happened. You read about it in books, but we actually experienced this. Oh, they're going this way. I guess I should go there too and lead them that way. It was so different for them, different from what they were used to. It was almost enjoyable for them to shift their brains. Even that very first all hands meeting we had when we were had this idea of, oh, we need to not put PowerPoint presentations in front of people. We need to focus on what do they need to know and how can we get this information to them in a way that is most enjoyable to them and how do we involve them in the process, all that stuff, right? We were thinking about them. It was so interesting. On the way to the all hands meeting, Ed kept getting phone calls from executives, very fearful. What are you going to present? Is so-and-so ready for their presentation? Just all this fear in getting ready for this all hands. And so, you know, we had to have two minds, right? One was kind of managing the way they're thinking and the fear that they have and managing this intention we had for this giant team and how we wanted to send a, a good message in this moment, right? This all hands moment. So we we're kind of keeping these two ideas at the same time. They kind of saw what happened and they responded. It was a really kind of like an out of body experience because at one point the executives are hugging each other. And we're like, wait, what? What is this? It was like somehow relief happened for them and they were able to be human. I can't explain it. All I know is that that is what happened over and over and over again. The one thing that remains the same is the intention part. We, <laughs> we focused on the team, this giant team, and then the leaders came and made a shift themselves. It was really fascinating Mostly, we assume that they were fearful. So I hear a couple things here again that's really interesting. One, we don't think of senior leaders being afraid, especially C-suite kind of folks. They know what they're doing and they inflict fear on the rest of us. You know, they're coming to visit, so we have to scurry around and make sure they're happy. And it doesn't matter where you are in an organization. It seems like whether it's a multi-billion dollar organization or a million dollar organization, boss coming into town, unless they work in the same place with you, there's scurrying and there's prepping and there's worrying. And no matter how laid back the boss thinks they are, their presence creates fear. Oh, yeah. So it's interesting that we don't project that they may be afraid of us. Oh, they're so fearful. There's so much at stake for them. That is one of the things that we do. We think about what is at stake for leaders. We often think about influencing people to change, but you also have to think about, well, what's at stake for the influencers that are involved in the change? A great example is maybe a leader is going to be heavily impacted by this change that's going on and they don't feel appropriately involved in it. How do you know that unless you take a closer look? If you just assume, like many of us do, oh, the leader's just being difficult. <laughs> the big thing that we talk about all the time is that a person's reaction to change is perfectly reasonable from their point of view because it represents their entire life's experience. So even if I don't like why, even if I don't agree with why, it's still perfectly reasonable from their point of view. So that puts me in a curious first mindset instead of judgment first. We tend to be judgment first at work 
for natural reasons. Like I said, we're trained to judge problems and get rid of them. But in the change situation, it's more advantageous to try and understand, well, why are they responding that way? And what might be behind that? And then what can I do that would be reasonable to make it easier for them? I won't be able to do everything. But there are probably a few reasonable things I could do that would help them understand that I'm trying to engage in a partnership with them. I'm respecting their point of view and I need them on board. It's so easy for us as leaders that you're holding that intention and you're holding the risk. Because I imagine some people, as you use words like intention and attraction, what they hear is you're disconnected from the current reality of there's this big bucket of risks and barriers here, and I've got a board to report to, or it's my personal bank account, and how do I make payroll next month if I miss this thing? Any range of issues that are very real and tangible, I'm responsible for the livelihoods of this group of people and this intention stuff, glad that it worked for you people, but not for me. (laughs) Right. That you are holding both and attending to both, I think is really an important distinction that you are engaged in reality of the thing they're afraid of and you're attending to it. And concurrently, it's not just like I set the intention because that's nice and that's what Roxanne told me to do, but that there's (laughs) actually a behavioral change that happens because of it. Yeah, I can tell you that if I didn't learn to talk in terms of risk when it comes to change, there is no way I would have been allowed to be in the corporate environment and do change management work. People understood this theoretical stuff that I was talking about when I can talk in terms of risk. So what is the people-related risk to you achieving the success outcome you're looking for? People can sort of wrap their brains around that. Well, these people are going to have to do something very differently. Oh, okay. Well, what is their expected reaction? Well, they're going to, you know, for whatever reason, they're, they're not going to... You get into a little bit of the reality of what's there in terms of risk. And then we ask ourselves, okay, what can we do to reduce that? And what should we pay attention to? This is the analytic part. We use measures that are signs for the leader that tells them, oh, we have a risk or, oh, hey, there's some progress that's being made here that we need to reinforce. So we don't spin up a big complex measurement approach. What we do is we tend to focus on a handful of metrics that can lead to really actionable insights by paying attention to them on a regular basis. It's the idea of helping the leaders be a learning group. They're they're paying attention to how things are landing and then responding. Yeah, I think part of this is the, the way in which leaders, when they're dealing with that fear and worried about the risk, they are getting themselves stuck on a local optimum. I just wanted to throw one little analytic (laughs) professor thing in there real fast. So they're doing what they can do to be as best they can, but in a small area. I've done this, right? I'm so nervous about what people are going to say that I'm trying to control the conversation in the meeting and I lock it, I try and lock it down. But as a result of that, I can't get to this step place that's so much higher because that information isn't coming out. And the only way for me to get there, I have to 
take on the fact that they may actually say something that I wish they wouldn't say in a large meeting with other executives there or whoever. But if I can get to the place where I can allow that to happen, then we can step up to that and see what's there. So one of the values of trying to put in some key metrics is to be able to show people that like you're stuck here, like realistically, how much better is this thing going to be doing what you're doing right now? Like, okay, well, we might smooth it and get a little better. What would it take to come up with your crazy value, double that number, increase it by 50%, whatever it is. And that starts to get people to think about, I really do have to think in a totally different way. And so for folks that are super analytical, that can be a way to kind of break them out of their place where they are stuck and get them to start to think about it. One of the questions that we'll ask people for these metrics, this is a proof test for them, is imagine that the metric is at its realistic lowest level and its realistic highest level. What action would you take? What decision can you now make? So that's useful in two ways. One, it first it tells you if the metric is useful or not. Because if you would say, well, I, won't, I wouldn't do anything if it was at its lowest level or at its highest level, well, you need to toss it because you actually don't care. It might be really interesting, but it's not a useful metric because right. it's not giving you useful information to then go make a decision. But if you say, well, gosh, if it got way up here, I would act totally differently. All right. Well, now that gives you something to start to shoot for and start to think about how would you get there. So I heard in a conference last week, the phrase, if your life's work can be accomplished in your lifetime, you're not thinking big enough. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, that, that's that great. great. That's helpful because we have a big, we have big goals. So thank you for that. Right. <laughs> we, want to, we want to bring joy at work to everyone. That's that's, probably unlikely that's going to happen goal, with but... just us in our lifetime. But it's nice to be able to shoot for something that's so big. Well, and this came out of Intel is building their new chip fab here in Columbus, where I live. And the person who was helping bring that deal about, evidently, repeatedly, Intel kept saying, you're not thinking big enough. You're not thinking big enough. For the people negotiating this deal, this was the biggest thing they could have imagined. Now what they're looking at is exponentially larger. How often do we as leaders or change leaders look at something through the lens we've seen in our experience and say, boy, that's as big as it can get. So yeah, bringing joy at work to everyone in the world. Yeah. How fabulous would that be that it is something that seems unreasonable instead of saying your goals have to be smart goals, reasonable, attainable, time bound, measurable. What if this really is everyone on the planet gets to feel good about the work they do, not just that the day is ended and they, they're exiting. I made it through my day versus I enjoyed my day. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We have uh, a client that we worked with. This is at the other end of the scale now, much smaller, but the same exact idea that you're, you're talking about, Maureen. They were going through a process where they're going to have to do their very first layoff. They'd never done that before. And they were afraid. They had paused on that decision for two years. They did not want to pull the trigger on that decision. They were concerned about what it would do to their culture, and they were concerned about being good leaders for these people and what would all that mean, and so ha hadn't done it. We talked to them about trying to flip that narrative to our, what would be the best possible outcome. We got to kind of a funny phrase of, you see him, it's happened, and you see him 
a few weeks later walking in the street and they actually walk across the street and give you a high five, right? Because it's gone so well that they're so happy with it. And they just said, yeah, that's great, guys. But uh, what we really want is to make sure that, you know, people don't start leaving because they're worried about what happens. But what we did was take them through that process to start to think about those things. Like, how do you take care of these people? How would you do the right thing by the folks that stay? How are you communicating this clearly so people understand the change? They did not have the experience where people walked across the street to give them a high five, but they did have the experience of actually seeing somebody in town later who talked to them happily and positively about how that experience had gone, how well things had landed, and how good it was for them, but also for everybody else that was in the company because they had now looked around and go, oh, so that's what it's like in this place if something bad like that has to happen. These leaders are actually going to try and make it as good as they possibly can. I feel better. I feel more secure. As opposed to the feeling people have when you watch your buddies get kicked out the door from a layoff or something. Well, now you're fearful. The great thing about that is the people who remained at the company, they now felt like this is our identity. This is how we do things here at this company. And I feel even more proud to work here, right? This is the exponential positiveness that happens that looks on the surface like nothing, but it's really huge as opposed to what you were talking about where people get kicked out of their companies. And now what you're doing is setting up for a transactional relationship between the employee and the employer, because I realize you're going to make this decision. I'm going to be kicked out the door. I'm going to drop back into transactional relationship with you because that's the safest thing for me to do. It's the wisest thing for me to do. It's the message that you're giving me. Got it. We forget that this thing that we are taught exiting people from our companies, the reframe is such an important question. And I'll say for me, as I dealt with some personal things in my history, thinking of myself as as a person who was treated badly, when I could reframe and say that bad thing happened a few times. The loving things happened literally probably millions of instances in my life. So am I an abused person or a, a victim or am I an incredibly fortunate person who like everyone's life has some stuff and moving out of a victim mentality for me has been life changing And I think most people can point to a place where they were victimized by a situation. But defining myself as a victim takes away any future power. And so I love how you are helping people consistently reframe because that one reframe for me, I'm able to then have efficacy in any situation. And that's what you're giving people the ability to be at choice and imagine what's positive rather than just we do what what people do. What comes to mind for me is this notion of mastery. So, so much about what we do is you know, we're almost learning as we go and we we look to what others have done and, and try to take the best of it, try to emulate it as best we can. But when you're in that mastery place, You can rise above the situation and you can see, okay, well, how would I like this to go? And where do I have the control or influence over that? Because there's probably quite a bit that you almost have to seek 
that mastery or remember you can go there. I don't think we really talk about that so much. It's almost like in, in most work situations, we value taking on more than we can reasonably <laughs> take on um, as opposed to this notion of mastery. The other thing I think about, and this is the thing that we're trying to research right now, and I say trying because there's not a lot out there, which is what is the impact of leadership on leaders? There's so much out there about the impact of leaders on people and so much about bad leadership. I mean, it's voluminous what's out there in popular literature alone, but there's very little on what impact does it have on a leader's mental and physical, emotional well-being when they lead? If you think about what you just said, Maureen, about letting people go, we don't really have a notion of what that does to you as a leader. And that has a huge ripple effect that we are completely ignoring, right? And I think that's partially why people are, are reluctant to move into management and leadership positions. It's very difficult work. You find you're out there in open water <laughs> trying to figure out how to ride the waves when you're, when you're in the waves. Um, and so it seems like there's a big opportunity to pay attention there. Um, and, and we really just aren't, we haven't spent a lot of attention there at all. We're very good at pointing fingers at leaders. We're not very good at being empathetic with their position. One thing that comes to mind from the VUCA research and a lot of other places, but it's the VUCA people I've seen recently, is the idea that 95% of what we do is what they would say below the line or unconscious. 5% of what we do is conscious. What you're doing here is elevating people to make conscious choice through the questions you're asking. And I keep going back to, and this is a repeatable process. It's not just, oh, I listened to this podcast and I did that and then went back to sleep. That idea that we can create the vision of what's possible back to the antidote for VUCA and volatile and what, Ed, you started with is what's the vision of the best possible outcome? That's my intention. And then revisiting that intention on a regular basis, not discounting that, yeah, all kinds of stuff can go wrong. And some of it will. And how do I get back on course? Yeah. So as we wrap up, any closing words or invitations for our listeners before we sign off? A couple of thoughts. So, you know, we talked about this idea of an intention and Roxanne and I like to use the word joy intention because it, I think it pushes you out further. And, and that can sound maybe somewhat daunting in terms of just thinking about taking a step back from that. How do you get there? First thing is you just think about what do you value? Like, what do you care about? And that, that's true for any decision. So for any decision you're going to make, we would advocate that's the first thing you start to think about. What do you value? Don't think about the end result first, think about the values that you have first. So don't think about what's my big giant joy intention. That might be too much to take on all at once, but think about what are the things that you care about? What are going to be important to you? And even just writing all those down as a brainstorm list and then look at those and say, okay, now maybe I can craft what my intention is going to be for my company, for my team, for this project I have to do over the next couple of days or even the thing you're talking about, Maureen, that you got to get done tonight, you know, go through and think about what are those things going to be, because it'll help you to be able to focus in on what you really want. And it doesn't have to be this 
difficult, daunting thing. It can be something that you can step into piece by piece. And I think the more people do it, the more they'll feel comfortable and it'll become easier and easier to do. Yeah. And I would add kind of sort of as an additive thing is this notion of adaptability. Do you see yourself as adaptable? One of the things that we have been doing is trying to help people see, hey, you actually are adaptable. And we pose the question, it's kind of a thought starter what would your January 2020 self be surprised and delighted to learn about your current self? Because I'm imagining you have a lot of skills that maybe you maybe weren't even intending to get, but now you have them. And remember all those skills that you had back in January 2020? So now you've added to them. What are you now capable of doing because of that? It helps people see, oh, well, I can change and I do change and other people can change and other people do change. The cliches in the world are people don't change and people don't like change. It's a cliche, really. And I understand why that's true. But if you look around, we've changed a lot in the last two years. Hello. (laughs) And many of us like working in our pajamas. Right. And, at least our living rooms. And who knew, right? Who knew some of us would be like, well, I didn't think I would like that, but here I am. So, I mean, I, I think just getting in touch with the fact that you, hey, I am adaptable and pointing that out to your team members. Hey, look, we are adaptable. Look at what we've done and uh, look at how we, we do it. And what else are you seeing in terms of how we're adaptable? Just having that regular conversation can help people take on that identity and actually be proud of it. Um, so I think that that goes hand in hand with an intention that you set. Brilliant. Thank you. Ed and Roxanne, how would someone find you? Well, there's a couple of ways. You can certainly find us on our website, which is decision.com. And you can reach out to us uh, directly on email too at joy at thechangedecision.com. And we'll be able to get in touch with you. Thank you. And here is, if we were having cocktails, I would say cheers to bringing joy at work to everyone in the world. We're not having cocktails, so we'll just do a virtual cheers. (laughs) Very good. Yes, that's great. Thank you so much. We appreciate the encouragement. We are on a mission. (laughs) Thank you. And to our listeners, I encourage you to practice what you've heard from Ed and Roxanne today. And notice from the analytics side, how does this impact your joy and how does it impact your results? So concurrently, you will be both more successful and enjoy your work more. If you have questions about today's show or would like to get in touch with us, email. Our address is inquiries at innovativeleadership.com. Goodbye and be sure to join us again next week. And thank you to Connex Partners for sponsoring this show.